you have your Bible today, let's turn together to James again, the letter of James, chapter 3, and we're going to read the next passage, somewhat brief, but man, full, verses 13 through 18. It's printed there on your bulletins, your bulletins on page 9. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray that you will move in us, Lord God, by your spirit as we hear this word now in Jesus' good name. Amen. Why do... Um, why do churches and Christian organizations implode? It's a lot of, lot of years of walking with the Lord in this room, and you guys have seen this. How many churches do you know that have lasted a long time and flourished? Now, often do you hear, oh, that church was humming along, and all of a sudden it splits, or half the members are gone, or some Christian organization, and then, you know, it's all the rage, and all of a sudden it's, it's just nothing. I think about this a lot. I, you know, we're almost 10 years into Trinity. Will we last another 10? You know, you can't really blame Christians. You really can't blame non-Christians who are suspicious right now of institutional organized Christianity because it is, even just in the last two or three years, I can't even keep up anymore with the scandals and the fractures that have just sucked the energy out of North American evangelicalism. I actually don't think we're going to see that recover for a while. Why does this happen? Some of you have come out of churches that have melted down and you have experienced the kind of horrors that spiritually can happen to you. Well, it happens for a couple of reasons. One is leaders fail. They do. Leaders get a taste for power. They get a taste for a position. Their leading becomes about them and instead of, instead of about the flock, the stories I could tell. And you can see the symptoms. They start to kind of remove the opposition, kind of edge out the people who are opposing them, or they just start seeking glory. Look, I mean, a, a, a big name feels good. So being a celebrity feels... I personally think celebrity pastors ought to be a th something we just get rid of. But celebrity pastordom is a, you know, or leadership, that celebrity thing, it feels good. And of course, you know, leaders fall for worse things, really sordid, awful, wicked, immoral stuff. Leaders fail. Relationships also fail because, you know, you guys have been a part of communities and we talk a talk, you know, we care. We love each other. We love each other. Until there's a cost... Until it really, you have to have some serious skin in this game now. And offenses happen. Some of them are real. Some of them are just perceived. But they happen. And feelings get hurt. And tempers flare. And repentance and forgiveness do not happen. Things sour. Eventually somebody says, I'm out. And there you go. The thing folds. It can make you wonder sometimes. I spent almost 50 years in the church. It can make you wonder sometimes, are Christian communities really that different? Now, both of those failures, leadership failures, relationship failures, they have the exact same cause. The cause is what I'm going to call a parasite, 
and it's a parasite that lurks under the surface of every single human relationship, and if, and if you do not kill this parasite, it will kill, it will destroy, it will erode. And as long as you are in any human community, I'm not just talking about churches, as long as you're in, in any human community, from a family to a school to a, you know, a, a romance, to, you know, if you're in any human relationship, you cannot take your eyes off this parasite. You dare not take your eyes off this parasite. You need to know about this thing. You need to kill this thing or it will destroy. And that includes every single church or every single Christian organization you'll ever be a part of. If you think this parasite is not there because you're in a Christian group, you, you just, you're not, that's a very ignorant thing to believe. Now, before we identify the parasite, and we will in a moment, I want to recall just something quickly about James's kind of whole letter, and that is, and you guys know this by now, that the what I'm going to call the framing reality of, of James's letter. That, that is kind of the, the big thing that he's writing his letter, you know, against the backdrop of this. This is kind of the, the big reality he wants his readers to really get in touch with is what the Bible calls new creation. You know, so human sin and rebellion against God, they've obviously created a, just a mess in the world. Tons of of destruction and misery and violence and so on. And God, through Jesus, is healing all of this. He is restoring. He's making all things new, the Bible tells us. And for James, at the very heart of that new creation, he says, the Father, God the Father, has implanted his word in his people. He's taken us, and he's taken the good news about who Jesus is and who this God is whose presence has been reopened through Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. You know, Jesus died for our sins, so God is not wrathful against us anymore. There's no condemnation now. We have peace, and we become God's children, and, and God, through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to restore not just people and their lives, but in time, the entire creation. And, and God's taken that word of what we call the kingdom of God, and he's put it, he has implanted it in his people. And what happens when God implants his word, beloved? It's the same thing that happens when you plant good seed in any good soil. It starts to produce fruit. It starts to produce the vibrant, expanding, maturing life of God. I think you could summarize James's whole letter in chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, of his own will, God the Father brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. That's really what the, the letter is fundamentally about, the word bringing life. And James calls that fruit, that life, wisdom. That's a word that kind of summarizes what the word produces. Wisdom is an understanding of the Word of God that produces the life of the Word of God. Let me say that again. Wisdom in the Bible is an understanding of the Word that produces the life of the Word. It's a grasp of God's reality that changes how you live in that reality. All of a sudden, you just wake up to the fact that, wow, like this is actually what's going on. This is who I am. This is who God is. This is what you know, God is doing in the world, and this is how I fit. That's wisdom. And what James is doing in this central text, if you kind of do a sandwich approach to the book, this is kind of the middle, the middle piece of the sandwich. In this central text, what James is doing here is he's, he's painting a portrait of wisdom for us. He's, he's kind of showing us what does life look like when the Father's implanted word is bearing fruit. And I want to start with the portrait before we get to the parasite. Let's just take a few minutes with this portrait of wisdom here. And I'd like you to notice the opening question. So who's wise and understanding among you? Now, this is actually not just true in the church. In any human community, you will notice that one of the features of those who start to rise in the community is there are people who have some insight. 
you know, maybe it's you know, some profession. You know, the people kind of know the profession well. They, you know, they've sort of mastered the craft. They become sort of the leaders, naturally. In, on, a, on a soccer team or a, you know, a hockey team or whatever it might be, in athletics, the people who kind of have some insight into the game end up being the leaders. I mean, this even shows up in you know, gangs and criminal activity. The people who kind of know where the drugs are are going to be the people that you know, lead people to the drugs and so on. So insight is just sort of a basic thing about leading and leadership, and it could be real insight or just even someone claiming to have insight, but, you know, they come with these ideas, and people are like, oh, or these ideals, like this is what should be, and people are like, oh, you know, and that, that's kind of how they rise, through insight. Well, when we come to the realm of religion, and the Christian religion especially, our whole religion is built on the idea that God has given us insight, the, the, the word that theologians use is revelation. God is not silent. He's a talkative God, and he's spoken and given us insight. He's given us knowledge. He's given us understanding of things. You know, to be religious in a very real sense, whether it's a Christian religion or some other religion, it's to have this sense we know things. We've kind of got this doorway of into, you know, this knowledge of how things really are. And, you know, the truth is, in Christ, that's actually true. You have been given insight. You've been given wisdom in Christ. God has given us knowledge and understanding of himself and his world and even ourselves. But what James is going after in this particular text is that the wisdom and understanding that God the Father gives to people in, through Jesus, when God opens your mind to to, to knowledge and wisdom and understanding through Christ, that, that wisdom and understanding is going to be very different from other forms of knowledge, other kinds of knowledge outside of Christ, and the difference is the effect it has on those who know. Let me say that again in case it wasn't clear. The difference in the wisdom and understanding that God gives through Jesus is the effect it has on the people who receive it. It has a very different effect from knowledge in other fields, a very different transforming effect than what happens in other kinds of wisdom and understanding. And what I'd like you to notice is that God-given wisdom, when God gives wisdom and understanding through Jesus, it produces a couple of things, still under the portrait here. In verse 13, you'll notice it produces a certain posture, and in verse 17, it produces a certain purpose. This is the effect on people who get God's wisdom. Number one, they have a certain posture. And I'd like you to look at the end of verse 13. You guys have your text? You got the text in front of you? Look at the end of verse 13. The posture that God-given wisdom brings is a, it's, it, James calls it meekness. Now, can I ask you guys, what do you think of when you hear the word meek? When God gives you wisdom, it's going to give you meekness. It's going to make you meek. And what's your immediate picture? If you had to draw a picture of someone who's meek, if you had a, you know, in your mind's eye, you picture meekness, what, what do you picture? I, my, my instinctive picture is just a mousy person. A mousy, you know, they kind of always stand like this, and they're unsure of themselves, and they're never too assertive, and, you know, they kind of just weak and, ugh, you know, major beta. That's actually completely wrong, biblically. There's nothing mousy about meekness. Meekness has kind of a vertical thing and a horizontal thing. Vertically, meekness is being humbled before God's sovereignty. Meekness is that extraordinary experience like Isaiah had when he stepped into the presence of God's glory, and he said, I'm undone. I am a nothing. <laughs> I feel like a big fish in the small pond of my life until I step in the presence of God and I just shrink down into almost insignificance. And I realize before God's sovereign rule over all things that I am part of his kingdom. He is absolutely not part of mine. 
And my agency in the world is subject to his lordship. It is not subject to my lordship. He is lord. He is king. He is awesome. I am not. That's part of meekness, that vertical humility before God's sovereignty. But the kind of horizontal part of meekness is you're not just humbled before God's sovereignty. You're also mellowed by God's grace. Because the more I really come to know and understand, to have wisdom and insight into how much the Father has loved me through Christ, the cost of Jesus' sacrifice for me, the perfection of Jesus' obedience for me, the, the, the sheer grace that would do any of this for me, and, and now I'm living under the Father, and uh, you know I'm, I'm his child now, and I just begin to watch the way God cares for me and provides for me and ministers his Holy Spirit to me, it's not just that I'm humbled by his sovereignty. I am mellowed, you know, even someone as edgy as I am. <laughs> Over time, you start to find that God is mellowing you by his grace. It just, the more you know the love and the goodness and the mercy of God through Jesus, it just takes the edge off in the way you relate with other people. There comes what I would call a sort of mildness that is possible from a place of strength. Like when I talk to people who are really strong, really secure, really just at peace in their hearts, it produces a kind of mildness. They're, they're not just edgy all the time in their relationships with other people. And that's meekness. I'm just not, impre- I'm not overly impressed with myself. I'm certainly not threatened by other people. God is for me. I have that humility and mildness that comes within. And I, you, you, if you, if you think that, ever think that meekness is mousy, all you have to do do is listen to Jesus when his self-description, he says, come to me because I am what? I'm meek. I'm meek. The perfection of humility, the perfection of that mildness. Jesus was never, ever rattled in any human interaction he ever had because he knew the Father. And there's an energy, you'll notice in verse 13, to this posture of meekness because I'm under the lordship of my Father and he commands me to go do good works. And so when I'm under his, I know his sovereignty and I'm humble before it, when God says, go do good works, guess what Ben Miller does? I go do good works. I'm, I'm under orders. My life is to be about serving the Lord through good works. But because I'm settled too, I'm not just under God's lordship, I'm under his love and I'm settled by that and my heart is at peace in that. I not only can do those good works, I really, really want to. I'm not empty, I'm full. And it's a joy to overflow to people. That's what comes out of meekness. Show me, James says, if you think you're wise and understanding, show me your works. Show me your works in the meekness of wisdom. That's the posture. Now, notice that wisdom, as it works, in verse 17, has a purpose. So you, 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 there's a meekness of God-given wisdom. I know who I am before God. I'm being mellowed in my relationships with people, and now I'm doing good works out of this meekness. And those works, verse 17, aim at something. They have a purpose. What's the purpose as you work? as you do good works. Well, God's purpose, as you know, his big purpose in the world is he's making peace through Jesus. That's how the Apostle Paul describes it. God is making peace through the cross. And the reason he's making peace, he's healing relationships, restoring relationships, is so that righteousness can happen. God is putting us back with himself so that we can live righteousness in our relationship with God. He's putting our relations with each other back together. He's bringing peace between us so that we can act out the fullness of righteousness towards one another, like love one another, which is the fulfillment of God's law of righteousness. 
as, as relationships are restored and peace comes in relationships, then love can grow. And it's described here as a harvest of righteousness. Fields and fields and fields of righteousness. That's what God's aim. Everything God made humans to become, growing and flourishing, because relationships have been brought back to, to peace. And God-given wisdom, James says, is always looking toward that harvest. And what wise people do is they are sowing seed to that end through these works, and it is work of peacemaking. That harvest of righteousness, you know, way upstream, it is sown in peace by peacemakers. Are you with me? As, as God's wisdom gets into my heart, I realize what he's doing. He is bringing peace between himself and us, between us and each other. God is restoring relationships so that righteousness can flourish. Like, that's now my program. And so I get busy with the work, and it is work. Let's make peace. Peacemaking becomes a priority for me out of the meekness of wisdom. That's my purpose. And I'd like you to just notice that peacemaking out of this posture of meekness before God and before others, that takes an enormous amount of strength. If you've ever had surgery, if you ever watch a surgeon, there is a gentleness and a precision about the movements of a surgeon. It takes massive control. If you've got a surgeon that's so strong and bulked up and jacked up that it's like, you know, just like almost like a loss of control. Everything's big muscle movements. There's no precision. There's no gentleness. You really don't want that person operating on your brain. That person should do something else. It takes strength to be gentle. It takes strength to rule your spirit. It takes strength to have your hand so it never shakes, emotionally speaking, in your relational way of being with people. Or you might think of the kind of strength in the patient persistence of the craftsman. You don't form a bowl on the potter's wheel by yanking at the clay. There is a very slow, steady, gentle working with the clay. It's the same thing with wood and with stone. Or you might think about teachers and coaches. It does not take any strength as a coach to scream at your players. It does not take any strength as a teacher to just erupt at your students because they're so stupid and wayward. It takes strength to stick at the steady work of forming and crafting meekness takes strength. That's the portrait we see here, the posture of meekness, the purpose of righteousness through peacemaking. But now we do need to talk about this parasite, because just like in chapter 1, the father of lights, who brings us forth by his word of truth, you remember that, he was challenged, James said, by this evil mother of desire, who instead of bringing us forth like the father out of the gospel of truth, The mother of desire gives birth to sin, desire that is not under God. It's just running after its own things. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, is a killer. So you had sort of the father and mother imagery there. And here, too, this beautiful wisdom from above, God gives us wisdom through his word, and it makes us meek, and it makes us peacemakers, and we harvest righteousness. That work of God is challenged, that wisdom of God is challenged by this sort of serpentine wisdom in verse 14, this deadly imposter that worms into our hearts like a parasite. Paul sa- uh, James says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, in, if it's wormed into your hearts, you, you, this is not the wisdom from above. This is the wisdom. I'm going to give a slightly different translation of these words. It's the wisdom, quote-unquote, of bitter zeal 
probably a little bit better than, I mean, jealousy's not bad, but bit, think of bitter zeal and self-seeking. You need to sort of like look at your hearts now and then and ask yourself, is that worm of bitter zeal and self-seeking feeding on my heart? And this is the idea. If your heart is not humble before God's sovereignty, if you don't see yourself as you really are before God, and you're not mellowed by his generosity, there's not been a kind of mildness that comes in just being settled by the love and grace of God, then what James says is going to replace that kind of wisdom and meekness, what's going to replace that is a zeal. Zeal is a fire inside. And that fire inside of you is not going to be for God's glory and for the good of other people. That fire, that zeal, is going to be about your own grievances and your own gains. There's going to be a bitter zeal about your, you know, all tied up in your grievances. And this self-seeking, seeking your own gain, that, that, will just, that will just creep into your heart like a parasite. And what's going to happen is you watch someone that's in the grip of this. What heats people up when this parasite is working? What heats people up is slights that have happened to them and obstacles that people put before them, people being in their way, people, you know... A, abusing them and offending them and causing difficulty in their lives and that's what heats them up and there's there's a fire that kind of burns about those sorts of things and what lights them up what turns them on what what sort of you you just see fueling their life well it's basically for these kind of people it's what's in it for me it's this just constant chasing personal advancement. And I basically don't really care at all about things if I don't see there's something in it for me. And I'm really into stuff when I see like there's something in it for me, my fulfillment, my advancement. I, I, like, I like thinking of sports superstars. I love watching like super athletes. And it's interesting, you can always tell the superstars, they're all, they all play with zeal, they all play with fire, but you can always tell the superstars who love the game and the superstars who love themselves. They play the same game, they play with the same fire, but you can tell the ones they play for the love of the game. And when they get knocked on their backside in the game, they pick themselves up, they smack the other guy in the back, and they say, you know what, play on. They win, they win graciously. They lose, they lose graciously because it's about the game, and they play for the game. And then you can always tell those boastful, fragile superstars, they play with amazing skill, but they're just always whining to the ref, and they're just full of arrogance when they win. They're fools, you know, they're, they're, they're this, that's bitter zeal, that's self-seeking. And you can see it very graphically um, in, in that. And, and, and James goes on and he says in verse 16, this parasite spawns just all kinds of nastiness. If that bitter zeal and that self-seeking are in your heart, it's going to produce, he says in verse 16, a way of relating with people that is going to be combative, it's going to be retaliatory, as Scott McKnight puts it very well. You know, James is living in the days of Jewish zealotism. You remember the zealots? They wanted to throw down the Roman government. They wanted to overthrow the Roman rulers of, of their land. They were terrorists. We would call them radicals today. And when James uses this word bitter zeal, he's thinking about that kind of zealotry, that once I've got my cause and I've got my grievance, or I've got some gain that I'm after, there's this kind of readiness to blow things up. And James says, you know, you, you start to watch that unfold in someone's life, where there's this bitter zeal and selfish ambition, there's going to be just chaotic wickedness. Disorder. Stuff that actually will kind of shock you. I've, I've been called as a pastor into situations where I find myself looking around thinking, wow, 
This is a war zone. I cannot believe the things that are being said and done here by people who name the name of Jesus. It's shocking how violent this can become, how explosive this parasite can be when it is full grown. And James in verse 17, then you'll notice, against the backdrop of that parasite wisdom and its poisonous fruit, he then kind of goes back to expand on the meekness of wisdom, but now in direct contrast with all of that bitter zeal and selfish, self-seeking and disorder and vile practices that flow from it, he now just reminds us what meekness looks like a little more fully. And I'd just like you to take, as I just kind of walk very quickly through verse 17, I'd like you just to picture a person who's like this. Over against what that parasite wisdom produces, imagine someone, and this is what you would say about their life as you think about them. James says, the wisdom from above, the first thing you'll notice is that it has a purity to it. You ever meet someone, and when you're with this person, things are just not murky. They're not murky. There's a clearness and a transparency about them, even a kind of simplicity. They're totally devoted to Jesus, and it just comes through somehow. There's like this aura of just, they just love God. They're, they're like transparently, totally, just they love Jesus. There's a purity to their devotion, and they're peaceable. They're peace seekers. They're not afraid to stand if they need to stand, but they're not combative. You don't feel like you're walking around on, looking for tripwires around them all the time. They're not, they're not, they don't erupt easily. They're very slow to, to react. They're just, they're just, they seek peace. They're, they're very glad for things to be calm. They're gentle. They're moderated, not extreme in the way that they respond. They're inclined to leniency. They're not rigorous. They're not hard on people. They're not a scorekeeper. They don't have filing cabinets full of, like, all the stuff that's been done in a relationship. They're gentle. They're open to reason, James says. They're persuadable. Like, if you talk to them, they listen. They're willing to change if it seems like, you know what, you're making sense. I hear you. They'll change. They're not like, they don't double down on everything. They're, they're willing to yield at times when it's appropriate. They're not always taking the hard line. They're open to reason. They are full of mercy and good fruits. These are people who are busy doing good things. Sometimes people get into some awful sin in their life because they're just idle. These people are busy just doing, you just watch their life and they're just always finding some way to bless somebody. They're impartial. They're impartial because their vision of the world has been corrected by the word of God. They're not looking with all this, you know, prejudice at people. They're not prejudiced by worldly ranking systems. Oh, those people matter. Oh, those people don't matter. They just don't think that way. They're impartial. They're not tribalists. They're not always thinking in terms of us, them. They just want to do good as God makes opportunity. They're they're impartial and they're sincere. Back to the purity thing. Their life does not clash Their actions do not clash with what they say they believe and claim to be true. There's a sincerity. And you know, if you have people like that in your church, your neighborhood, your family, your various communities, people like that are glue. Peter Davids calls them a binding force in community. These are the mortar between the bricks. And the only person who's ever lived, verse 17, perfectly again is Jesus. And I do want to remind you guys of that that when we're struggling to work out this wisdom from above, we are always doing it under grace because Jesus did it perfectly for us. He he fulfilled this 
in every respect in his relations with people. And so that's our righteousness before God, his righteousness, not mine. And it enables me then in the power of his spirit to begin working on becoming a person like this who is, you know what? You could lose a lot of people in a community, but you don't want to lose that brother. You don't want to lose that sister. That would be devastating if they pulled out because they have this wisdom that is from above through the Father's word. Now, I want to move at the end of this sermon, and I really want to ask this question and play with it for a few minutes. So who's wise and understanding among you? Who's wise and understanding in this church? Who are the glue people here? Who among us is really devoted to healing relationships, to building, to giving? Who's really visibly into those activities? And who among us, as you watch their life, they got a lot of grievances, and they are very much into gain. The people who are quick to bristle, quick to find fault. Or people who are very glad to take, come, come, you know, come to worship services, come to feasts, come to you know, men's meetings, come to youth meetings. They're glad to come and take. They slip out as soon as we're traveling on the train and we realize the track needs to be, more track needs to be laid down or the track needs to be repaired. I often tell my kids, you know, everyone wants to ride the train. Nobody remembers the train's got a track. Someone's got to build that track. Someone's got to fix that track. We all want to ride the train. Who are the people who slip out when the track needs to be repaired? Oh, I want to ride the train. Thank you very much. I'll be back when you get the track fixed. Who are those people at Trinity? Who are the people who absolutely are like, I have to ride with them? Nah. You know, we're 10 years in. In 10 years in this community, 10 years from now, who will have shown that their hearts are gripped by the kingdom of God? And who in this church will have shown that their hearts are really gripped by a constantly running personal cost-benefit analysis? I've got some questions for you guys. And I don't mean these in, in some sort of lawyerly in, in interrogation way. I just I want to think about this text together. I want to ask some questions about it, some very specific questions about how we're doing with this wisdom from above. So the first set of questions, given that this wisdom from above flows through the word, here are some questions I have, some diagnostic questions. Again, these, some of these are very specific, but these are questions I ask myself as a pastor about this wisdom from above. We know it comes to us through the word of God. The word of God gives this wisdom. You will never be humbled before God's sovereignty and mellowed by his grace if you're not connected to the word of God. So I have some questions about our connection to the word. Like this. How can Christians spend hours on digital entertainment when they can't spend 10 minutes for the word? How can that be? I don't have anybody in mind as I'm asking these questions. I'm just asking. How can Christians take a job or send their kids to college somewhere without ever checking to see if there's a faithful, flourishing church there? I mean, is that the extent to which we actually prioritize getting ahead in life over God's word and God's people? I will never understand this. How many Christians either take a job somewhere or send their kids to college somewhere, they never actually see if there's a faithful church? Do you not understand how much you need the word of God and the people of God? How can Christians think nothing of missing worship? 
It's not sin to miss worship, but I'm absolutely blown away by how many Christians think nothing of just skipping worship to do something else. Why are so few of us reading the Word of God together? Why are so few of us actually praying together? If we need the Word of God to give us this wisdom from above, these are just questions, just questions to think about. I've got more questions. Not so much now about our connection to the Word, without which there's no wisdom, but our questions now about our relationships. Again, nobody in mind, just thinking out loud. Relationships and how we steward resources in relation to those relationships. Maybe I could call these questions about lifestyle priorities. Here are some questions. And I want you to think about the portrait of wisdom we just saw in that demonic wisdom. Bitter zeal, self-seeking, it's all about me. So here's my questions. Why are so many Christians so ill-equipped to resolve conflict? Especially in their families. Why? What's going on that we have so many Christians who are so bad at resolving conflict? Another question. Why are older saints, by and large, not teaching younger saints how to love, especially in their families? Why is what Paul commands in Titus 2, older women teaching younger women, older men teaching younger men, why is that, by and large, not happening? It's not that it's not happening at all, but it's not happening a lot. And here's the problem. You know what the first theater of peacemaking is toward a harvest of righteousness? The home. Why isn't this happening? That's part of how we cultivate the wisdom from above, that kind of mentoring ministry. Here's another question. Why in an epidemic of loneliness does making money so often take priority over building lasting friendships? Why is the job trumping relationships? More hours at work, and we should spend more hours building friendships just because we want to make more money. This I'm sure will go over well. Why do many Christians spend more money on eating out than on hospitality? Full of mercy and good fruits. Building bonds full of peace and love. You've got to structure your life for this. Why do Christians go into debt until they can't even tithe, let alone give bountifully? Here's one that sobers me a lot. Why do so many Christian youth not want to marry? And even those who want to marry don't want to have children. Why do so many young women in the church not want to be moms? Why do so many young men not want to be dads? Because you know what it tells me? I'm not drifting from the text. It tells me that our young people, many of them, I'm going to have nobody in mind. I'm just asking, why are they more enamored of climbing in a career? Because after all, that's the chief end of man, right? A great career. Why are we raising kids who are more enamored of climbing in a career than they are with the whole idea of building a kingdom outpost called a home that is full of God's shalom, where we have to really work through the disruptions of love? Why? And of course, I would have to do this before I wrap up. Do we ever ask how bitter zeal and self-seeking play out in our habits online? 
Michael Sacasas asks some just probing questions, and I want you to think about the portrait of wisdom from above we just saw and that rival parasite wisdom, and think about these questions in light of what we just heard from James. These are questions Michael Sacasas asks. Again, they're open-ended questions, but about our use of technology, because we're all using it a lot. He asks questions, and it just gets me thinking about wisdom from above. How will the use of this technology affect my experience of time? How will this technology, use of this technology affect my experience of place? And then he really goes in. What practices will the use of this technology cultivate? And what practices will this use of technology displace from my life? There are some practices I'm not practicing anymore because I'm using this technology this way. What will the use of this technology encourage me to notice? See, peacemakers are noticers. What will the, the use of this technology encourage me to ignore? How does this technology empower me? And at whose expense? What feelings does this technology generate in me toward other people? Can I imagine living without this technology? Why or why not? What desires does the use of this technology generate, and what desires does this technology dissipate? Or I just don't have any hunger anymore. What possibilities for action does this technology present? Is it good that those actions are now possible? What possibilities for action does this technology foreclose, and is it good that those actions are no longer possible if you're going to work out the wisdom from above? What limits does the use of this technology impose upon me, and what limits does my use of this technology impose on other people? These are relational questions. Does using this technology require me to think more or less, and what would, be, what would the world be like if everyone used this technology exactly as I use it? Those are questions that force us to ask if it's about me or about the kingdom. Because here's the thing, and with this I'm done. When people think about being like Jesus, they usually think that means being nice. That's not what it means. Being like Jesus means being wise. It's not the same thing. It means being a person who is full of the word of the Father, and as that word is working in you, you are working in the world to fill the world around you as much as you possibly can with peace, with order, with righteousness, with beauty, and with joy. And that's the question I want to leave us all with. Who's wise and understanding among you? So make us doers of the word, Father, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.